Dr. Michael Roizen. Dr. Michael Roizen. You, the Owner's Manual Radio Show. You are listening to, as you downloaded it, you, the Owner's Manual Radio Podcast. This is 1166B. The Bs are wonderful guests, probably some of which are almost as important as Benjamin Lewin has been to the field of medicine and science. Every now and then, we have a great, substantial guest that is beyond all others. And yes, I've been lucky enough to interview 1,166 people so far. If you include today's interview, it's Benjamin Lewin, who is a graduate of the University of Cambridge, England. He became the first editor of Nature New Biology in 1971 and then worked at the National Cancer Institute from 72 to 73. So I should ask him if he knew Vince DeVita, who's a good friend. He founded the Cell Journal, which is still one of the most, if not the most, important journals in its field in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 74, remained editor until 1999, and he's author of the best-selling Genes textbook and a series of books on wine. So we should obviously talk to him about his wine as well. And I'll get to that, I hope, before the end of the interview. Dr. Lewin, thank you very much for coming on. And we are going to be talking about the book, Inside Science, The Revolution in Biology and Its Impact, which is published by Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory Press. And I am, of course, your host, Dr. Mike Roizen. The sponsors of the program, longevityplaybook.com, a way of curating longevity choices based on the science. So you choose only and get recommended only those choices, whether it's exercise or whatever specific choice it is, So you get recommended only those choices that are scientifically valid. That goes with our second sponsor, lifesfirstnaturals.com. Lifesfirstnaturals.com, the provider of bovine colostrum. You can go to their website, lifefirstnaturals.com, to see the randomized controlled trials showing in what areas it's beneficial such as the prevention of upper respiratory infections after strenuous exercise, lifesfirstnaturals.com. Dr. Lewin, thank you very much, and thank you for writing this book and for, of course, being founding cell and being such a substantial, making it such a substantial force in science and such a valid source. I loved the chapter, I think it's chapter five, called The Myth of the Scientific Paper. I loved it because it was everything I've ever done in science has been either proving or disproving hypotheses that take you, and whether you're proving them or disproving them, they often take you way away from the reason you started that study. And that's kind of the myth of a science paper. Can you talk to us more about that? Yes. One of the messages of the book is that you never know where science is going to go. And that's really why we should support basic science without asking, why are you doing this? Where is it going? You never know. The idea 
that things aren't quite where they appear to be, because all the way back to Francis Bacon, I think in 1602, he said, discoveries are never reported in the order in which they were made. And that's about right. I can give you many examples, but one of them, for example, is the recent technique called CRISPR for doing gene editing, which is a very powerful technique for curing diseases, potentially, and so on. And this was discovered as a rather weird property of bacteria, and for 10 to 20 years, nobody knew it had any relevance to human welfare whatsoever. And then suddenly, it develops into a technique for engineering genes with the potential, perhaps, of curing cystic fibrosis or whatever. You just never know where you're going until you get there. That leads to the question about funding of science research, which you also go into, and always my most, what I considered my most innovative grant proposals would get turned down, and I would get, but you would always have a second one in, or second choice in, but it was always the one that would get funded, which was rather standardized and plebeian research. I think that's true of a lot of research that gets funded. The investigators who are doing it do something slightly or much more imaginatively different with the money they get than what they wrote about. I got that feeling that you believe that as well. Yes, there's a famous case of a Nobel Prize where the application was put in to do various things. and Most of it was turned down. The investigator went and did what he thought was going to be valuable. It turned out very good. And a year or two later, the grant committee said, we are very glad you ignored our advice. Funding for science is a bit of a catch-22 game. You apply for a grant. You're not going to get the funds unless you can have some reasonable proof that you're going to be able to do the experiments and they'll be successful. And you can't get that proof until you've got the grant. So it's somewhat of a circular problem. That's certainly, it is a a circular problem. The interesting thing is that not only does it frustrate a number of people that their most innovative ideas don't get funded, but I suppose it slows some science. Do you feel it it does slow science or does, does science move independently of that? In other words, One of the things that has happened since I've left the funded world, meaning since I became a chair and and then a emeritus, when I was a scientist, I would always look at and try and do the experiments where the science led, which often wasn't what the grant was written for. But I feel, at least in the United States and at least with many universities and academic centers, there's much more tight auditing of what you're doing and what you've proposed. Is that true around the world, or is it just my plebeian experience of that? No, I think it's generally true that the granting system constricts science. I think, personally, we would do better to fund scientists rather than to fund projects. Take a scientist, look at his last five years of work. If it's good, fund him for the next five years. The worst that will happen to you is that he'll run out of ideas and you won't fund him for another five years. But that's probably going to be a more productive system than asking people to write grants. And you have to remember, a scientist spends a great part of his time while doing one grant, writing his proposal for the next grant is a terrible waste of time. And if you really knew what 
you were going to get as a result, what would be the point of doing it? It's not a very constructive system. And, and I think that comes to the essence of your book, Inside Science. We're talking with Benjamin Moon, who wrote what I think is a really remarkable book about the inside of science and what's going on in science and why some of it isn't as one expects. Tell me, the other thing you deal with is what I would call some of the surprises of science and where we're going now and both the joys and fears of artificial intelligence and gene editing. Do you want to pick one of those two or even both of them and talk to us about them? Artificial intelligence is a really interesting problem. So science runs on the principle that you report your results, you say what you did, you say how you did it, and you give enough details that anybody else can try to replicate your results. Then if down the road somebody else gets a result which disagrees with you, other people can go back and have a look. They can try to repeat the experiment to decide what's right and what's wrong. Now, the problem with artificial intelligence is we don't always know how it works. And if you don't understand how it works, how can you verify the results? I think this leads to a situation in which we accept some things which we wouldn't accept otherwise. For example, the first photograph of a black hole was taken a few years back. shows a very sort of fuzzy area and some light around it. Uh, a few months ago, the original data were reanalyzed using artificial intelligence techniques, and we now see a rather tight black hole with a very clear ring around it. And that's now accepted as that's the view of a black hole. It's accepted because an algorithm said it was right. If a person, a, a scientist, has said, my intuition is that it's really tighter, he would have been laughed out of court if not accused of fraud. So what worries me about AI is that we're going to accept conclusions because we don't really understand how the algorithms work, and we wouldn't have accepted them nearly so willingly had a person worked it all out and explained what he was doing. And the fear of that is, one, we will accept things and not be able to refute them because we won't know all the techniques. In other words, what we say on the show and have numerous is, and in fact, in, in the Longevity Playbook app, it's always required that before we say something, whether it's exercise or a form of exercise or a food or a supplement or a brain game that's supposed to help, that it should be replicated by a different group independent of the first group meaning science is strongest when things are independently verified. And what you're saying with artificial intelligence is that some of this may not be able to be verified because we don't know the methods involved in the process. That's right. There's a wonderful example in the analysis of protein structure. So proteins have always been analyzed, well, in recent years, by very arcane techniques, X-ray crystallography, nuclear magnetic resonance, which depend on a lot of mathematical analysis. But in principle, you can go back and work through the analysis and decide if, if it's correct or not. This has, in a sense, been replaced by artificial intelligence, which predicts the structure of a protein and has proved, by and large, to be much more accurate than the old techniques. But the interesting thing about the paper that reported the technique is the authors say, we don't understand exactly how it works, we ask the program how it works, and our best guess as to how it works is, is like so. If we don't really understand how it works, 
How can we be sure if it's right or wrong? What do we do if we have a disagreement with it? It undercuts the basic principle of science that someone else can come along independently and confirm the results. Yes, and I don't know what you would call it, but when we use it in medical diagnosis, they will argue artificial intelligence, even when we have pathology and have come to a conclusion, they will argue that we're wrong. So when they come to a different diagnosis than you did. Medical care, it's interesting how much taming and expertise is needed to help it. I suppose it's the same question in both medicine and science. If you don't understand the basic principle of analysis, how can you decide if it is right or it is wrong? Now, one of the things that is advanced so much and so quickly relates to another one of the chapters you wrote in Inside Science about major discoveries, and the Human Genome Project was clearly that. Do you expect the human lifespan to be expanded because of what we've learned in from the human genome? What's your best guess on what happens with our lifespan and our quality of life? Well, I suppose our lifespan will continue to increase, but I'm not sure the Human Genome Project will necessarily bear on that directly. This is a bit like the old argument as to whether improvements in life and lifespan over the last century have been more due to improvements in public health and sanitation or due to medicine. The human genome so far has not led to any direct medical advances that I'm aware of. Maybe it will do in the future, but it hasn't done so yet. Don't you feel that the editing of, and maybe I'm wrong, the editing of some genes, for example, in sickle cell disease or in the amyloid-induced heart failure has been due to the human genome? We wouldn't have gotten the gene editing without the Human Genome Project, would we have? Well, that's probably true, but now we're into the issue of how far are we going to be able to take personalized medicine? Knowing the gene sequence, knowing the mutant sequence, knowing how to correct it is important. I'm not sure how much of that comes out of the Genome Project as such. I mean, the Genome Project is a sort of mass analysis of the genome. It doesn't necessarily give you information about any particular disease unless you have controls and you need quite a lot of other sorts of data for that. Yes, I suppose I'm taking it as without the knowledge of the basic human genome project and the advances since then in understanding you'd never be able to know, you'd never be able to make the advances in gene, in knowledge of what was expected and what changed. I suppose that's true, but we have a way to go. The Nobel Prize winner, Sidney Brenner, once said that sequencing the human genome was the easy part. The difficult part was going to be knowing what to do with the information. And I'm not sure we really do know yet. Yes, I I think that's true. So if you're in the work about inside science, revolution in biology, its impact by Cold Spring Harbor Press, we've been talking with Benjamin Lewin. And Dr. Lewin, let me kind of say one of my fears in America is that the funding for basic science will decrease, whether an inflation adjusted or, or on a absolute scale. 
Do you have that fear or do you think that the advances have done enough to keep us going forward and keep funded and keep the government funding it? I think the funding has been good and I don't see the funding as such drying up at this point, but I do worry that there is something of a movement to say, let us make basic science relevant. And that the consequence of that is that scientists, given that they are competing for funds, say we need to apply for grants for things that are fairly safe. And so that people don't apply for grants to do things that seem a little bit way out, things that don't seem immediately relevant. There is, if you like, a certain sense of self-censorship in what type of projects people apply to do. That, I think, could be quite damaging to basic research in the long run. And while I'm on it, let me ask you one more question. One of the interesting advances, I would say, is the mRNA vaccines. But part of the problem with them was their rush, perhaps, to be used more quickly or in cases where the the normal science wasn't done. Is that just my perception, or do you think that's real, that, that they were rushed too quickly? I think it's a mix of things. As far as I know, there have actually been quite a few mRNA vaccines in preparation for quite a long time, and it's been more a matter of getting them through the regulatory process than anything else. COVID was such an emergency that the regulatory process was certainly shortened. The surprise to me, actually, is that the mRNA vaccines have proved more effective than conventional vaccines. I admit I don't quite understand why that is. This is more of a delivery mode for the vaccine than the structure of the vaccine itself. But they seem to have been very effective, very effective for COVID, and I assume we're going to see more of them for other infectious diseases in the future. Yeah, we're already seeing it for, obviously, RSV, and we're beginning to test them, at least at the Cleveland Clinic, for certain cancers. So I think you're right, we will see more of them and more innovation in them. The point I was bringing up is that at least in the under 50 population, we're beginning to see a lot more, I would call it complications or side effects of them than we expected to see. And the consequence of that has been that when we now talk to patients about flu vaccines or Tdap, we get a lot of pushback, which we didn't have before these side effects were known in the, again, it's mainly in the under 50 population, the side effects occurred, but everyone is talking about them. Are we sure that the side effects are due to the vaccine as opposed to COVID, which seems to be a very tricky sort of virus? Yes. No, no, no. It, it is clear it's long COVID is, or COVID disease symptoms lasting a long time is clearly a problem. But we're beginning to see a fair bit of arthritis that seems to be related to the vaccine. That is that people who don't have the disease or haven't had symptoms of the disease, but do get vaccinated and get symptoms of that, symptoms of arthritis within two or three weeks of vaccination. I think we'd have to look at a control 
with people who have been vaccinated against COVID using conventional vaccines. Yes, we don't have that yet. That would make me a bit cautious about concluding that mRNA is the problem. An mRNA vaccine should be a very good way to do it because mRNA is very short-lived, doesn't sit in the body for a long time. All of this says that it should be, in fact, in a sense, an ideal type of vaccine. So I don't quite understand why it should be associated with any problem. I think we would need to look at other vaccines to be sure that this is not something to do with COVID as opposed to do with the mechanism of the vaccine. Yes, it would be. I mean, I don't think we have that control or that study done yet. It does bring up one of the important points of inside science on the the value of randomized controlled trials. We've been talking with Benjamin Lewin, who has made major contributions, I believe, in science through his work with the initially Nature New Biology and then the journal Cell. The book is outstanding and written with enviable lucidity so that all of us, not just scientists, not just the lay public, but both groups can really understand and as a scientist, feel the reality of what he has written. Important book, Inside Science, by Dr. Benjamin Lewin, L-E-W-I-N. You've been listening to You, the Owner's Manual Podcast, 1166B. The Bs are always excellent guests. We thank the 50,000 of you who download us weekly, all of you as they say about the French, can't be wrong. In fact, probably most of you are right, and I appreciate that. Please do visit our website of our sponsors, lifesfirstnaturals.com and longevityplaybook.com. Dr. Lewin, I can't thank you enough, but especially you, our listeners, thank you. You're what motivate us. We'll be back next week. Download the A segment as well, the latest medical news of the week, and what it means to you. Thanks again.